I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at New Balance. I always took issue with the term athleisure. Sure, it covers the workout and the chill-out part, but doesn't account for all the running around the average woman does in between those two things, which feels far from leisurely. The people at New Balance get it and have created the fresh foam cruise sneakers to cover all those bases. The breathable knit body slips on and off easily, the sole cushioning is incredibly comfortable, and they look great whether I'm in sweats or jeans and a blazer. You can get your pair at newbalance.com, use code GOOP at checkout to receive free shipping through September 30th. Hi guys! Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Lucy Kalanithi. Lucy received her medical degree from Yale. She's now a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the Stanford School of Medicine and a general practitioner with an interest in end-of-life care. Now for my patients, I think a lot about like, what does it mean to participate and what does it mean to craft a legacy? And, you know, as you lose your hold on the world, how do you manage that? She's also the widow of Dr. Paul Kalanithi, the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, When Breath Becomes Air. If you haven't read it yet, it's a stunningly beautiful meditation on both what it means to die and what it means to really live. He writes about this conversation in the book where... We were talking about whether we should try to have a child, and I said to him, you know, I'm worried that you having to say goodbye to a child will make dying more painful, because I really was worried about that. And he said, wouldn't it be great if it did? Today, Lucy sat down with our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, to talk about love, grief, family, the ties that bind us long after death, and a different way of thinking about faith. So I remember in medical school, asking Paul, I was like, so... You talk around this stuff a lot, but like, do you actually believe in God? And he's like, I'm not even sure that's a totally important question. He's like, it's just as important to ask, do you believe in love? After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and her interview with Lucy Kalanithi. All right, so take me back to the very beginning. When did you and Paul meet? We met as first-year medical students. There was a um, fundraising auction, and I won a date with him uh, as far as part of the <laughs> fundraiser. And then we were together forever after that. That's a good prize. Mm-hmm. Those things generally don't work out like that. Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you guys go on your first date? I don't remember exactly. We weren't really dating. You know how it's like... I don't know, in the olden days, you'd meet people at school or through a thing you were doing together. It's like we we were just together. Yeah. Hang out. Yeah. Although I'll tell you, I um, initially for the first few weeks of school, I was like, oh, there's that smart guy in our class. He was running a bioethics seminar and was just sort of, you could tell that he was sort of cerebral. And then I found out that he was wearing a fake mustache on his ID for medical school. He'd been a comedy writer in college and... I don't know. He pulled this fake mustache out of his pocket and put it on for the med school ID. I think he didn't want to lose that part of himself, like the funny, messy human yeah. self as he became a doctor. Yeah, and a neurosurgeon. I feel like that is one 
specialty where there's not a lot of laughing. No, there's not a lot of wiggle room. No. Yeah. And I'd, I would imagine like so unexpected, right? Like a neurosurgeon with a sense of humor. Yeah. Although now I've learned they're all so sweet. Yeah. They all have like, <laughs> I don't know. I love neurosurgeons now. Although when we got engaged to you, it's going to be a psychiatrist. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny? He loved the brain and he loved people who are having a crisis. And then right after we got engaged, he learned that he loved the operating room. Yeah. Which, <laughs> that's a big transition. And to have the hands to do it, I would imagine, is a hard transition. Although you can train your hands. Like, they don't, they don't, test, your, they don't test your dexterity on your interviews. Like, you, if you work hard enough, you can train your hands. They test, like, your judgment mm. and your thinking and your commitment but they don't test your hands. So when did you know that you, that Paul was the guy for you? I don't even know. I, I just really liked him and really respected him, you know, and mm-hmm. trusted him. Yeah. So he received his diagnosis when you guys were both deep, deep in residency. And I loved in the book, and I've heard you speak about this too, that you were actually, your marriage was in crisis from, I guess, was it disconnection? Was it just the long hours and the grind? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Now that Paul, Paul wrote about that, and I've talked about that a little bit, I know all about people's marriages now. Everybody tells me. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> um, yeah, we were going through a really hard time, basically because of the long hours, you know? I mean, Paul was working over 100 hours a week, and it's so hard to even do your job, let alone maintain your relationships and I was working really hard and, you know, we never stopped loving each other. It was, it was a very hard time, but then he got diagnosed and it was sort of like we had, we had connected over all these things like that brought us together, you know, and it was just like all of them had to bloom to be able to go through this illness together, you know? And I think as physicians, we had a language to talk about illness and suffering And we had sort of developed this really deep communication about what was important to us in our lives. And all of that came kind of flooding in on that day when he got diagnosed. And he was so awesome. Like, so today we're doing this podcast five years to the day after he got diagnosed. And so today I keep thinking like, okay, like it's 1 p.m. And that's right around the time we called Paul's parents after looking at the CD. It's funny. It's like Mm. that's that day is really um, looming large in my mind right now. And, you know, we both jumped into his hospital bed the day that he got diagnosed. And very soon after, you know, looking at the CT scan and understanding really completely that he had metastatic cancer that couldn't be cured, he told me he wanted me to remarry after he died. And it was such a profound thing to say. It was like a real acknowledgement of the diagnosis and what it meant and the fact that he was willing to talk about it like in its full meaning, you know, like Mm -hmm. not just the battle metaphor, but like, here's the thing we're going to go through together. And I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about you after me, you know? And it's like, I just think that's so loving to, to love somebody independent of who they are to you, you know, like Mm -hmm. he's thinking about me in a world where he doesn't even exist. I don't know. It just, he was just, he really had his head around, how to do that stuff. Yeah. I would imagine too, knowing since you're both physicians, you could both read his scans, that there was no room for 
there was a certain accountability that you held each other to in terms of like what it means that probably allowed a different level of conversation. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard because the the whole metaphor of the battle, especially in cancer, you can barely talk about cancer without talking about we're going to fight it and beat it or he lost his battle or he succumbed to whatever. And it's like, that's, it's so dichotomous. Like there's not a lot of room for tolerating uncertainty or, you know, doing two things at once, like hoping for a very long life and also preparing for what it will mean for you and your family if you don't have that. And I think being willing to talk about the whole spectrum of it, Hmm. let us like really experience all of it together. You know, I think there's, I think it's really tempting to sort of put up a brave front Um, But I think you can lose intimacy that way, or you can be more fearful and alone that way. And so I think, yeah, intuitively we knew to kind of talk about all the fearful parts of it. While at the same time, I think the thing that Paul really wanted to do was, you know, and he said this multiple times in the book, was until you die, you're alive. And so Mm -hmm. he lived for 22 months after getting diagnosed, but like really struggled and worked on how to keep living during that whole time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, uh, and this is often easier said than done, but playing it out to the worst, the worst case scenario, you know, like understanding and holding and looking at the end then allows you to sort of strip out some of the, the fear of getting there too, I think. Like I don't, somehow I think that that can be empowering, though I've never experienced anything close to what you've experienced. But I love that I think it was in your I, the TED talk that you gave where you said that living means more than just staying alive. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a profound statement, both in the context of end-of-life care and, and what that means. And let's definitely, I want to talk about that in a minute, but, but how you live with what you have left and thinking about that right turn too in your relationship and how his diagnosis cracked open like a new level of intimacy, like how sometimes these horrible things also like birth such beautiful things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like that's been true for me too, since Paul died, you know, like I think everybody's carrying around like secret pain sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is, like literally from losing a family member to being worried about your finances, to having an abortion, to everything. And I think having been pretty public about this hard thing that our family went through, I've gotten to learn about many things that other families or people have gone through. And it's been so neat and sustaining, you know, I think connecting with people through that. I mean, I think there's not a point to suffering exactly except for how it connects you to everybody else in the whole world. Mm. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> and you think about Paul's legacy and what, like what an incredible legacy you know, like we were talking about this before we started, but when people read When Breath Becomes Air, you know, he's alive, right? Mm-hmm. And they're experiencing him and his fullness and his honesty and bravery. And he just keeps going and expanding and like touching people, which is so incredible. And most people do not get to do that in the span of 90 years, much less 37. Yeah, 37. You know, it's funny because it's so nice and gratifying for me to hear you say that because I think it would have meant so much to Paul, obviously, to see 
the readership that his book has. But I think, you know, and then as you're saying it, I'm thinking like about what it means to have a legacy and the fact that, you know, the way you have a legacy is that other people participate in it. But I also think the the act of creating a legacy intentionally, you know, like um, Paul did it in writing, you know, when he was diagnosed with um, terminal cancer, he he was no longer able to hold on to this idea that he would be a neurosurgeon for decades and maybe in the distant future a writer, and instead ultimately turned to writing and understood that he was writing something that would likely outlive him. And as he was becoming more and more sick and isolated, um, he still was working like really hungrily on this task of writing. And I think, you know, when you're talking about legacy and readership, it sort of reflects back into what I remember Paul's experience of writing being, which is, you know, he remained a participant in the world. And I think with disability or aging or illness or dying, um, you can really lose your grasp on like who you are and what your place in the world is. And so I think, you know, for Paul and then now for my patients, I think a lot about like, what does it mean to participate and what does it mean to craft a legacy? And, you know, as you lose your hold on the world, how do you manage that? Yeah. I loved in the book, the struggle that he had in terms of like the, the amount of time and the prognosis and wanting to understand the, the curves and the arc of his illness and how, how obsessed, you know, he was obsessed with it, how obsessed people can get and how he would sort of defy his oncologist I mean, to tell him how much time he had and her refusal, which I thought was incredible. And I agree with that because I feel like people are, it, how can you put a, how can you define what's unknowable? But I thought it was such a great lesson too in like doing it in the moment, right? Like prioritizing and and doing it and and then I'm sure he could have saved more lives, but he also left this incredible book and a daughter. Mm-hmm. So how, how did you decide in light of what you guys were facing that you wanted to have Katie? Oh, we talked about that on the first day he was diagnosed too. We had, we had thought we would have children around that time, like mm-hmm. when Paul was finishing neurosurgery residency, because that's when things, you know, purportedly get easier. And... Then right after he was diagnosed, we sort of looked at each other and said, you know, would we ever consider still trying this? And, you know, he was more certain than I was initially. And I remember I read that book, Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. Have you Mm -hmm. read it? It's so good. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just thought, you know, when you have a child, you're inviting all kinds of uncertainty and pain, probably. (laughs) Like everything from like the uncertainty of how pregnancy goes to like, you know, what it means to raise a child all the way through your life. And I just would thought like, can I, can I take that on knowing that I likely would be doing it alone at some point. And then I also was worried about Paul and what it would mean for his, you know, what it would mean as he was losing stamina and how it would affect other things he wanted to be doing in his life. And like, you know, just whatever. We talked a lot about what it would mean to do that. And then it became so clear that it was a good idea. And right around that time, he, he writes about this conversation in the book where we were talking about whether we should try to have a child. And I said to him, you know, I'm worried that you having to say goodbye to a child will make dying more painful because he really was worried about that. 
And he said, wouldn't it be great if it did? Mm. And it just was, that really cemented it for me. Like, you know, wouldn't it be great if it did? Is like a, that's a real acceptance of like all the beauty that comes with making a hard decision like that. And the fact that if pain comes with it, then that's mm-hmm. part of it, you know? Yeah. And it's inescapable. As you said, it's like, you can't like with, with love comes loss and like all these dichotomies that you were talking about that you have to hold. And I think we always think that they're distinct, but they're not, you know? And thinking about that too and and like his call to you to remarry and how does that work? I don't know. I feel like somehow I've gotten better at tolerating either really strong emotions or just conflicting emotions at the same time, right? It's like all so good and so bad. I think um, even just the, (laughs) even just the fact of Paul's book, you know, it's like the, it's the best and worst thing that ever happened to us, you know, and it, and same with Katie. It's like, this particular child wouldn't be here if we hadn't had her during Paul's illness. It's just like, it's all everything. And I fell in love since Paul died and that too, same thing. It's like loving Paul at the same time, being so sad about Paul at the same time, and then being so happy about falling in love. It's just like, I don't know, it's all happening at the same time. Yeah. And I think that that's the great like revelation of life right? Like nothing's compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. It's all messy. There's no, you know, I think there's this idea when people die that they fade or that it becomes inactive love or that somehow you like, we were talking about this earlier, like you get over it. And these are things that like, you don't get over, like you get reconciled to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Like what is that? What is it like to, to live with that? Like, is every day the same? How? Do, what does it feel like? I mean, I think it's like, I think grief is like that. You, you're living with it. And yeah, I don't anticipate getting over it doesn't really make sense to me. I think, you know, I mean, I think the pain of missing Paul is less than it was before. Thank goodness. So that's true. I don't love Paul any less than I did before which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I think the experience of having done this book tour on Paul's behalf has really taught me too, like how much you want to keep talking about your person, you know, and I have a hook for people to do that. Um, you know, strangers ask me about Paul, but I think a lot of people, they lose somebody in their lives and then we're afraid to make them cry or afraid it's going to be awkward if we talk about the person. And, you know, Cheryl Sandberg wrote about after her husband Dave died, she was at a dinner party and everybody was laughing and sharing stories about how they had met their spouses. And nobody asked her how she had met Dave. And mm. she totally wanted to share it and talk about it. And it, to her, it made complete sense to just share it as part of everybody's stories. But I think people sort of felt like they couldn't ask her or for whatever reason they didn't. And I think, I don't know, This it teaches me something about grief to mm-hmm. really like enter into it and ask somebody because it's right on the top of their mind. Yeah. This, we were talking about this earlier, but it's the one year anniversary of my brother-in-law's death. My brother's husband died in San Francisco. So it's, I think it's no coincidence and I am here with you. And Peter was my, I've known him since I was in, um, teenager and, um, 
loved him dearly too. And I like, there is nothing I want more than to talk about him, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that people, you know, if someone asks me, it's like this feeling of relief because I think Mm -hmm. you think about these people all day, you know, they're Mm -hmm. never, there's, it's never like, you're like, oh my God, you reminded me. (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) But it is such a solve Mm -hmm. to be able Mm -hmm. to like, talk about them and share stories and then they're alive again in that moment. Mm -hmm. What are like other misconceptions or things about grief? Like what, what else has surprised you in this process? You know, I was surprised by how physical grief was. And I think that's, you know, it's like depression is really physical, you know, it's like the way your body feels is different. And I think in grief, I was sleepless some of the time. And then the really striking thing was I had really severe tingling in my hands. Like I had really, I would wake up at night with my hands tingling and burning. And for a while, I sort of totally catastrophized it and was like, the year that Paul died, I have now developed an unnameable neurologic disease (laughs) that will lead to me and Katie being destitute. And I think, you know, anxiety was a piece of grief too, but I think... You know, about a year after Paul died, I woke up and I didn't have tingling anymore. And there's something called conversion disorder. And um, I really think it was that. It's like neurologic manifestations of a psychological distress. And Paul writes in the memoir briefly about how his own mom had seizures after her father died. And that was similar, like a, you know, a Mm -hmm. physical manifestation of grief. And I was, I was really surprised by that. Yeah. What was most helpful for you? In, in the days, weeks, months, and even years after? I mean, I think it's the thing we said before, just having a chance to talk about Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really helpful for me. It's helpful for me to have people around who will help my daughter get to know Paul. Mm. Um, I mean, he did that in his writing, too. But to have people paying attention to her uh, and her future relationship with Paul really matters to me. Yeah. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Lucy in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. Like so many women out there, I have a whole other job to get to that starts the second I clock out at the office. In my case, this typically means chasing after my two young boys while attempting dinner and cleanup and bath time, and maybe a last-minute trip down the hill to the grocery store because we're out of milk. Anything involving my kids requires a shoe that can keep up. The Fresh Foam Cruise Sneakers from New Balance do just that, thanks to the easiest slip-on and off design. To keep my sanity, I try to hit up a Tracy Anderson cardio class between my two jobs a few times a week, and that's where the sneakers' breathable knit body and super plush foam sole come in handy. The fact that New Balance shoes are aesthetically pleasing doesn't hurt either, especially when I put the sneakers on Saturday morning and don't take them off again until Sunday night. There are six great colors to pick from, like a pretty blush pink, dusty blue, and sleek black. You can get your pair at newbalance.com. Use code GOOP at checkout to receive free shipping through September 30th. I was obsessed with magazines growing up. W, Interview, Vogue. I don't want to age myself here, but there was no social media. This was really sort of my only window into the world growing up in Montana. I put tear sheets all over my walls. I obsessed over magazines. And I thought that the magazine world was something I couldn't touch. But I got a break after college and started a career at Lucky. 
And that career primarily consisted of packing boxes and checking in clothing samples and getting coffee. And that was all fine with me. Eventually, I became an editor. Fast forward to Goop many, many years later. A lot of what we do is obviously digital, but it was a dream come true to be able to create a print version of Goop, complete with food, culture, style, and wellness, concepts similar to what we do on the website, but a totally different format when you're holding it in your hands as a magazine. Our third issue of Goop Magazine is coming out soon. It's my favorite so far, stunning and full of fascinating deep dives, delicious recipes, indispensable travel advice, and really beautiful fashion. I'm also really excited because for the first time, we are offering a magazine subscription. We'll send you four issues of the magazine right to your door. And as a thank you for signing up, we're also going to give you an amazing gift. A mini exfoliating instant facial, which is a bestseller in Goop. We literally cannot keep it in stock. And a five-pack of Goop Glow, which is a skin super powder that you can drop right into your water. I drink mine every morning at the gym. To learn more and sign up, go to goopmagazine.com. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Lucy Kalanithi. And I know in your work that you are talking, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like increasingly you're sort of focused on end-of-life care and the process of dying, sort of the one inevitability in life that none of us prepare for. Um, we did a story with someone who has these, actually has these death parties where she gathers people when everyone's alive and well to sort of put down, foment wishes and talk about these things and have these conversations, which is an incredible idea, but very hard to get people to do. As she says, most people spend more time on a grocery list than they do preparing for the one inevitability in life. And Paul did it so beautifully. And and you mentioned uh, that, you know, an, ad, an advanced directive is an act of love. you talk a little bit more about why you think that's so important? So I'm a primary care doctor and... So I've had a lot of patients who have been terminally ill or who have died suddenly. And um, I think it's really important to have an advanced directive. And uh, it's not sexy. You know, it's like a piece of paperwork that does two things. Names who would make decisions for you if you couldn't, uh, healthcare decisions, and then specifies a little bit what type of care you would want if you were very ill, although it does it pretty dichotomously too. If you sign the form in your lawyer's office, it's quick. And you basically say, if I'm going to live, let me live. If I'm going to die, let me die. It's, it actually, advanced directives actually grew out of a patient autonomy movement, like in the eighties and nineties, um, where it was the Supreme Court recognized that patients had a right to refuse medical care, like duh, and that then you could have a right for somebody else to do it for you. So it's basically, a, that's the history of advanced directives. But to me, much more important than the paperwork is just having somebody who knows you really well and knows what's important to you. You know, we have all kinds of technology available that can keep people alive for a really long time, potentially, in various states of health or various states of consciousness. And, you know, Atul Gawande in his really amazing book, Being Mortal, talks about um, somebody who says, you know, as long as I can watch football on TV and eat chocolate ice cream, I will be happy being alive. And there are other people who say, I really want to avoid being in pain. And for Paul, the really important thing was mental lucidity. 
and being able to keep writing and be with our baby daughter. And once it was clear that he wouldn't be able to be mentally lucid, that was the end for him. And, you know, the way that a loved one dies, I think, can shape your grief, you know, and your participation in that can sort of be something that carries you through um, the ocean of grief. And I think not only is helping somebody make healthcare decisions like an opportunity to help, it's, it's an opportunity for like a very deeply meaningful, intimate, shared thing. Paul said something really nice to me when he was sick, which was, you know, being doctors and understanding the complexity of healthcare and all of the stigmas in healthcare and um, thorny decision making, he could tell that um, I felt this real responsibility to help him die in a way that was consistent with who he was and, you know, ultimately maybe make hard decisions. And he could tell it was weighing on me that I was really nervous about it. And um, he said, you know, just so you know, if something goes off the rails, you know, like I end up getting CPR and I wouldn't have wanted CPR or, you know, whatever. Our family's freaking out. He said, um, don't worry about it. All you can do is the best you can do. And the last day of your life is not the sum of your life. The sum of your life is the sum of your life. So he's like, whatever happens on the last day, it's fine. You know, don't feel guilty. Don't feel, don't feel bad. Just do your best by me. And it was so nice because this stuff is super complicated, you know, and it's like, there's no right answer. Like all you can do is just do the best you can for yourself or your person that you love. But I do think knowing somebody well and having a sense of your healthcare and what will actually help and what will not help and, you know, being honest and facing up to what's really happening with your body matters and can help your family avoid trauma too. Yeah. And I think it, it lends everyone some control, you know, and a little mm-hmm. bit of a roadmap, which mm-hmm. as hard as it is to not exhaust every single thing, I think allows a process that's painful to be a little bit more beautiful in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, uh, the description of his death holding Katie is so beautiful and like what a amazing way to go you know yeah and there's if you like if you look at surveys of what people want at the end of their lives like staying alive as as long as possible is one of the things but like being spiritually at peace and making amends with loved ones and helping their loved ones avoid burdensome decision making like there's all these things that people want that you really can achieve yeah totally and an advanced directive to allow, you know, takes that off the onus off of you, right? Mm-hmm. So you're following someone's will, you're doing as you think that they would want, and you're not responsible, mm-hmm. which I think is so powerful. One of the things I was really struck by throughout the book was sort of how Paul, sort of this insatiable quest that he had. And I think one of the driving reasons for becoming a neurosurgeon, why he wanted to also then become a neuroscientist, um, is this idea of the meaning of life, right? And, you know, he talks, there's this passage that I kind of wanted to read because it's so um, beautiful, but he writes, yet the paradox is that scientific methodology is the product of human hands and thus cannot reach some permanent truth. We build scientific theories to organize and manipulate the world 
to reduce phenomenon to manageable units. Science is based on reproducibility and manufactured objectivity. As strong as that makes its ability to generate claims about matter and energy, it also makes scientific knowledge inapplicable to the existential, visceral nature of human life, which is unique and is subjective and unpredictable. Science may provide the most useful way to organize empirical, reproducible data, but its power to do so is predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life, hope, fear, love, hate, beauty, envy, honor, weakness, striving, suffering, virtue. And it's so, he does it, he, he touches that so many times in such beautiful ways um, throughout the book. What did he, what did he believe ultimately? Like where, what did he, what did he think? You mean like religiously? Yeah. Or just like, yeah. I know you guys, I know he went to church a little bit, but, but did, as he end as the end of his life came, like, did he, was he peaceful? Like mm. where, where did he yeah. end up? So I remember in medical school asking Paul, I was like, so you talk around this stuff a lot, but like, do you actually believe in God? And he's like, I'm not even sure that's a totally important question. He's like, it's just as important to ask, do you believe in love? Mm-hmm. And it, that, that's what he writes in that section of the book, right? I love it. And I, you know, when Paul died, he definitely would have said he was a Christian. And I think he he sort of understood religion as a way to... A, you know, a bunch of different methodologies to come to terms with human suffering. And he was at peace when he died. And some of it is summed up in something he wrote in the book, this little aside. I think it's like literally in parentheses, but he says, um, you know, people, people say, you know, don't you ask why me? And my answer to that would be, well, why not me? Mm-hmm. And I think that really matters, you know, like, to understand. I think he had this sense that his his suffering was not unique and that was sort of um, comforting to him. And then he uses the word striving in that passage that you read. And I think that ultimately, I think, was the thing that was most important to him. Um, striving to be a good person, which he writes about. And then also um, a friend after Paul died said, I think that Paul felt the meaning you know, striving to find meaning in our lives is part of the meaning of our lives. And I think, I think that makes sense to me too. I agree. You know, and also the way that Paul was a great reader, um, in addition to a writer, you know, I think he had this sense that the humanities and literature and medicine were really linked for him in a way that's not totally intuitive. Um, and certainly like structurally in the educational system, they're not linked, but I think all of them are a way to get at the questions of, you know, what, who are we as human beings and what makes our lives meaningful? And yeah, you know, stop there. You wrote this in the New York Times and you said, I believe he died fulfilled, not feeling he was leaving everything he wanted, but having everything he wanted, which is so beautiful. And I think in the arc of the the book, it's like he essentially finishes his residency and then that's the end of his career as a neurosurgeon. And then he writes this incredible book. And when you think about purpose, it's like, yes, you could have had decades of um, working as a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist and maybe discovered where memory is stored in the brain or any of these other major mysteries. But he left like just as much of a again, like a legacy in 
such a short period of time, but it's like I, it, what you said, like he lived his purpose. I think we think about how everything is, you know, we have 80 years or 90 years or whatever, but it's like, we might not. Right. But also like you can do it all in, and a day or a year, you know? Yeah. You know, it's funny because after Paul died, the um, epitaph or part of the epitaph on his headstone, it says Paul Kalanithi, neurosurgeon and writer. Mm-hmm. And it felt gutsy to put the word writer on there because at that time his book hadn't even been published. And, you know, and then since the book's publication, now all these other things has happened. Like it's been translated into 40 languages and it's out there in the world. But I think the his devotion to it, like his doing it day in and day out is like he already was a writer, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, he's an amazing writer. I love that he grew up on books too in Arizona. And I guess I want to talk a little bit more about end of life care and, and sort of as watching, I'm sure many, many, many people go through it. Like, do you have any words of wisdom, both from your own experience, but also as being a primary care physician and sort of a quarterback, like how do you, how do, what's the best way for people to evaluate what's important to them? There've been a whole bunch of surveys of patients and um, families about their medical care. And one that really sticks out to me is a quarter of people have received or witnessed a family member receiving excessive or unwanted medical care. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of the trend. I think the same taboos that exist in society outside the hospital walls follow you into the hospital walls where people are really afraid to talk about the hard stuff, you know, or really afraid to talk about dying. And I think that really matters. And I think, you know, there are studies that show that after somebody dies, the family can have post-traumatic stress disorder, depending on what happened in the hospital. And, you know, that's a big deal. The definition of post-traumatic stress disorder is, you know, you witness a trauma and you fear that you or someone you love will experience, you know, maiming or, or die as a result. And I think it's crazy that the American medical system like can do that to people, you know? So I think it's really important. And I think the baby boomers are actually going to change this a lot because they are asking questions about healthcare, you know, like, okay, of the treatments that are available, which, what are the potential side effects and what are the potential downsides? And will I be able to do the things I care about if I undergo a particular treatment, whether it's, you know, particular type of dialysis, you know, dialysis in a center versus at home or more chemo versus hospice or, you know, whatever. I think the one practical tip I like to give people is to consider seeing a palliative care specialty team. They are amazing. They're actually a medical specialty that grew up over the past few decades, um, focused exclusively on quality of life and untying and helping with thorny medical decision-making. And their hospice is a tiny section of palliative care, but palliative care specialists can go alongside all the other specialists, like a neurologist for Parkinson's or an oncologist for cancer. Um, You don't have to be anywhere close to dying to have a palliative care doctor. They just actually help with the quality of your life during your medical treatment, and they're awesome. So in answer to that practical question, that's Mm -hmm. one really good tip. And then I also like a number of different books 
Vicki Jackson wrote a really good book about uh, being a cancer patient or caregiver. And then I like the book um, After the Diagnosis by Steve Pantelat that, you know, both of those talk about how to understand the healthcare system and translate what on earth people are talking about, you know, into your real life and what you actually want. Mm. Yeah. How do you think, I know death is, and one great gift from Peter, and maybe this is a really weird thing to say, but I've lost my fear of death. And I wonder if there's any way to help people to that place so that it is, that there's joy in the dying, you know, or that there's a way to do it peacefully or beautifully, which I feel like I wasn't, I don't, I never knew Paul, unfortunately, but it feels like he did that. Thanks for joining our interview with Lucy Kalanithi today. I was so struck by so much of what Lucy said and Paul's stunning answer, why not me, in response to the age-old question, why me? I also love Lucy's message about how helpful it is to keep talking about loved ones who have died as a way to keep them alive. That resonates deeply with me. Learn more at paulkalanithi.com. And for a deeper dive into some of the topics talked about today, check out goop.com slash the podcast. Okay, on to the Ask Me Anything. Anna asks if I still practice Ashtanga yoga. And I don't practice Ashtanga yoga like I used to. I used to do yoga. I used to do Ashtanga yoga six days a week for seven years, rain or shine. And then I had my kids and it was much more difficult. And then I had some lower back issues, blah, blah, blah. But I still do yoga a couple of times a week. I still think it's a fantastic kind of exercise. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.